it's season four. We finally made it. Holy Welcome back, it. ladies. <laughs> you all right there? You going to make it? <laughs> Blew my fucking ears out. <laughs> well, I thought I would start the new season by pegging all the wonderful sound equipment we have in the 1821 studios and up in the Shire studios because this is the new season of the Witten Whiskey cast. Uh, I am Marker City Jr. doing my best John Travolta. Uh, and here, as always, with the co-host, the man who has to edit all this later on for your ears, DJ Gagnon. Hey, everybody. Glad to be back. Yeah, it's, you know, it was a long off-season. It wasn't really, but it felt long. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the trailers and the toasts. Mm. So we're back. We're stronger than ever. We're going to start off with spooky season here. We're going to do another one of our holiday specials. I don't know if they're famous or infamous, but either way, you're going to remember them. Uh, but before we get into that, buddy, what have you done this past week? Uh, yeah, it's been a pretty good week. Uh, I, this, is, uh, this is my like Wednesday, I guess. Tomorrow's my Friday. Uh, I, I got two days off later this week. Um, How I, drunk are you? Like, when did you I start pre gaming for I this episode? I haven't actually pre gamed. I just took a sip of the whiskey and got really distracted. Um, yeah, so I'm just working on some house stuff this week. Uh, I almost let my house on fire this uh, past weekend, so that that was exciting. Yeah, um, this episode was almost uh, ball. Well, first it was almost the Red Cross and whiskey. <laughs> yeah. Then it was almost ballasts and whiskey. Yeah, uh, I I learned some intricate things uh, about. Uh, fluorescent light fixtures and how you should be really careful about what light bulbs you buy. Um, and, uh, yeah, narrowly avoided it. Uh, it would have gone off in the library, which would have been the worst room for a fire to start. Um, but no, we're all good. We're all good in the Shire studio. Things are a little bit smoky and I got to wash some clothes, but, um, the electrician was, came out pretty quick and, uh, <laughs> Crisis averted. Uh, so everything else has just been getting ready for winter. Um, got a, a couple of little house repairs here to do before uh, the snow actually sets in. But I sent my snowblower off to get serviced. And uh, we're, we're going to stake out our cherry tree to make sure it, it can't fall over during the winter. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to shut off outdoor water valves and put my hose away. Do, getting ready to do my final lawn mow. You know, all of the... The shit you gotta do up here in the Northeast uh, before <laughs> winter actually comes. You know, and this is doubly funny to me, ladies and gentlemen, because not more than three nights ago, I believe it was, maybe four now as we record this, uh, while we were on PlayStation Chat, my illustrious co host accused me of living in a Norman Rockwell painting. <laughs> Although I believe you called it a Norm MacDonald painting. <laughs> I can't remember the names of painters I'm not a huge fan of. Get out of here. But, you know, you're living the, the fucking Green Acres life up there, you and Holly. Living that, that hashtag Shire life. Uh, yeah, no, I, it, I don't actually mind winter. I, I grew up with it. Uh, Snowblowing is not that big of a deal for me. Um, I'm not much of an outdoor winter sports person. I just tend to get under four blankets and read a good book, but... Um, you know, not as many people bug you to be going outside in the winter in New England, which is nice. So, uh, yeah, you know, that's kind of what's coming up for me. How about you, buddy? How's your week been? Well, I actually, you know, we're talking about snowblowers. I have a snowblower this year. You know, I'm uh, soon to be turning 
35, I think. I don't even know how old I'm going to be. I'm soon to be <laughs> turning 35, and I had never had a snowblower until this past January, and I only got to use it about twice. So I have one this year, which means that we're not going to get any snow uh, because, you know, it would be easy this year. Uh, you know, it's been crazy with work, uh, just, you know, meetings on top of meetings. Uh, just, a nonprofit is a lot like Congress. You have committees and you have subcommittees and then you just, uh, <laughs> if you, you have to see, uh, thank God I have the, the folding Samsung phone with the big eight inch screen for my blind ass because my outlook calendar with all the different colors for all the different committee meetings, it looks like a bloody pride, pride pride flag i can say it <laughs> when i open it up it's just 80 million different colors across each and every week so it's it's ridiculous uh but you know that's good uh got the roads to put away for the winter got that all ready but otherwise i don't really give a shit i don't care about you know the lawn or anything like that but the cars winterized we're not going to put the you know soft plugs out the back of the block or anything like that so we'll be good and when it gets cold just curl up under the blanket and pet the cat nice i like drink it. whiskey yeah, we, we actually have a sled that we can use this year, and we have, we've got a pretty good sledding hill. So uh, we're, we're oh, I was going to see, see okay, you said sled, and I was like, you bought a snowblower? But, or a snowmobile, rather? But okay, no, oh, it's no, a sled sled. That's cute that you think I own anything but the bare minimum number of engines. <laughs> I could see you and Holly on a snowmobile, though. Like, I mean, eat. I do have an Italian scooter. Well, that see, that doesn't surprise me in the least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do we get for whiskey news this week? Oh, okay, yes. Uh, I found, because they were recently announced, uh, in fact, I can give you the date, it was the 21st, so, what, four days ago as we're recording this, they released the most admired whiskey brands list of 2021. Amazing. Do you want to take a guess? What is the most admired whiskey brand? Is this U.S.? No, this is worldwide. Um... Most admired? I mean, I want to say Jameson, but it's probably not Jameson, huh? Jameson is, let me look at the list. Jameson came in at number 50. Jesus. Uh, I have no fucking idea then. It is, and I'm going to butcher this, and I apologize to any and all Japanese listeners and or native speakers we have on this podcast. It is Yamazaki. Oh, I feel like I've maybe had some of that. Well, you've had their some of their uh, mother brand. They're under the Suntory label. Ah, uh, okay. And I know you have sampled Suntory in the past. But the uh, Yamazaki is their 12-year high-end Japanese-style whiskey. Uh, any guesses on what came number two? Jack Daniels. No, Jack Daniels came in at... Ooh, did Jack Daniels even make the top 50? I don't think it did. That's a good point. Does anybody drink American whiskey outside of the U.S.? I'm just skimming this very quickly, but I don't see it. I don't believe Jack Daniels made the top 50. Uh, number two was Red Breast. Oh, okay. I've which, heard of that. Uh, I've heard of it. I've never had it. Uh, number three was uh, Lagavulin, which, okay, I've you know, heard of that. All right, Ron Swanson. Um, yeah. So uh, Yamazaki won the b most admired worldwide. Redbreast won most admired Irish. Uh, Lagavulin won most admired Scotch. Coming in at number four and coming in as the most admired American whiskey, I have to admit I've not heard of this, DJ. Hmm. Michter's. 
I don't think I've even seen it. I have not heard of this, but this is the most admired American whiskey. Going on some of the quote-unquote big brands, uh, topping the charts on the big brands, Johnny Walker is 13. Uh, McClellan is 15. Woodford Reserve is 16, which is the only other American whiskey. Number four and number 16. Okay, now this is bullshit. I'm calling bullshit on this. Four Roses is 18. It's, I'm calling bullshit on that. Uh, looking on the bottom 25, Glenfiddich is number 35. Uh, Maker's Mark is number 42. So, yeah, I will. I And then, as I said, Jameson is number 50. If I remember, I will post a link to this on our Facebook page so you can go. This is courtesy of Drinks International, part of the Whiskey Branding Awards for 2021. So, hey, if you have a bottle of Yamazaki, uh, drink up, because that was the big winner this year. That's pretty cool. I'll have to see if I can find some. Yeah, and I'm going to have to look to see what this Michter's is. (laughs) Uh, All right, what are we doing for Tools of the Trade? Uh, So I thought I would cover um, a a cocktail ingredient uh, today, because we're in Halloween, and... uh, you know, aside from pumpkins, I feel like the spookiest fruit out there is pomegranates. Uh, you know, largely because of its uh, Greco-Roman uh, mythological roots of um, being used by Hades to entice Persephone into the underworld. And so I thought I'd talk a little bit about, like, pomegranates and how to, how to kind of get out the pips... Uh, and how to uh, use it for cocktails. So uh, one of the more common uses for pomegranates is grenadine. Um, And if you ever want to make your own grenadine, I think we've covered this in a previous episode, Um, grenadine is not actually cherry-flavored, like I thought growing up. Uh, It's meant to be pomegranate-flavored. You can make it on your own by popping the pips out of a pomegranate, uh, blending them up, uh, you know, pressing the juice out of the, the mash that you get and then making like a one-to-one simple syrup with it, maybe a little bit of orange peel or something like that to amp it up a bit. And then you have grenadine, and that's in a number of cocktails. Um, you know, most famous for the, the Shirley Temple mocktail, um, but, you know, grenadine, it's, it's everywhere. But pomegranates themselves can really amp up a, a cocktail in some interesting ways. A lot of people tend to think, you know, you, you think you think bitter, you think berries, you think fruit flavors. Uh, you know, a lot of people think cherries. They they think um, you know maybe pineapples. They think um, you know th- that kind of thing for cocktails. And, and you know, we'll talk about tiki culture at some point. Pineapples are coming. Uh, but pomegranates can amp up in a really interesting way. They kind of, their flavor profile falls somewhere in between the citrus and the berry flavor profile. So you can use it for some really interesting things. I've used pomegranate pips uh, in uh, Moscow Mules. They're pretty damn good. They combine well with lime. Um, they, they're, they also complement lemon pretty well. Uh, one of my favorite um cocktail well I guess you could call it a cocktail um but it's uh it's kind of just a a garnish to champagne um I I like to this might sound a little gross but a little bit of coconut jelly and uh some pomegranate pips and a glass of champagne really interesting and it's really tasty 
Uh, so pomegranates look really scary when you get them. Uh, they're like this nice red and they kind of have like a leathery skin almost. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know how to prepare them. Uh, if you do want to know how to prepare them, there's a really great episode of Good Eats. Uh, and it's actually conveniently enough, a Halloween episode where Alton Brown explains how to make grenadine, how to, uh, get the pips out of a pomegranate. He gives you like a billion tips and tricks and how to get the juice out. It's all really great. Um, but his method for it is you, you take the pomegranate, you cut the top, you cut the bottom off, kind of like an onion. And then rather than cutting straight into it, you score the outside of it. So top to bottom, you just cut thin lines all the way around the pomegranate, uh, you know, vertically. And then you get a bowl of water, big bowl of water, and you put it your hands with the pomegranate underneath the water, and you just slowly pull it apart. And it'll split at the scores you made, and you get like, you know, seven or eight slices kind of of this pomegranate stuff. The reason why the water is important is that the pips float. Uh, Which no, sounds the, the dirty, pips, the but actually sink. isn't. The pips sink and all of the flesh floats. All right, now that really sounds dirty. It does. So what you do is you just kind of slowly, you don't need any tools at this point. You just kind of use your fingers to lightly scrape the, the pips out and the pips will sink. And there's like this white waxy substance on the inside that you can just kind of peel off in between the, the layers of pips and that waxy substance and the skin flow. So when you're done, you've got a bunch of pips just sunk to the bottom of the water and you can kind of like skim off all of the skin and, and the wax stuff and then you get the pips. And the pips are really good. You can eat them as a snack. You can use them as a cocktail garnish. You can muddle them into cocktails. You can make a, a pretty interesting old fashioned with some pomegranates. Um, and, uh, you know, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of pomegranate, uh, and, and some, maybe some Ango or, or Peychaud's bitters, and you can kind of amp up your, uh, your old fashions for, for Halloween. So pomegranates, not just for enticing women to, to the underworld. Although they do help. I mean, you know, they are an aphrodisiac. What is it with really disgusting things being aphrodisiacs? Oysters, pomegranates. Pomegranates are great. I mean, no, they're very delicious, but, I mean, they're terrifying. They, <laughs> they are. They, yeah. Absolutely the, if you don't, like, do it in the water as you're trying to peel the pips off, like, out of water, it definitely looks like the fruit is bleeding while you're you're plucking them. And, I mean, just, you know, everything about I mean, this whole conversation, someone needs to cut this and without context, you know, sinking and the flesh is floating and take your fingers and dig them out and then you're going to get a white milky substance and do it in the water and yeah no it's just out of here we have the explicit tag we have the we have the explicit tag for a reason folks we do um i before we uh, actually move on to our topic though what are you drinking this week all right now you're gonna make fun of me i well possibly because there are some times when you just say fuck it and today was one of those days. And I actually went to the liquor store and I bought a bottle, but I'm not going to review it today because I'm not in the mood or the mental headspace to do it justice. So I was panicking and I said, you know what I haven't had for a while? 
and it popped in my head, and I said, ooh, this will be good because this will also start another one of our great debates, I think. <laughs> so I am drinking, and you all going to laugh because it's pretty fucking basic. I'm drinking a highball. <laughs> it's so basic. But now, here comes the fun part because... This is one of the great debates of the whiskey world, or at least it used to be. I think it, it's become more settled in the last 10 years or so. But what do you consider a highball, DJ? You know, I don't know that I've actually made one in a while, but highball is such a huge category. Yes. Like, I mean, sex on a beach is technically a highball. Yes, because it's... Highball is technically a classification of drinks, not a drink in of itself. Mm-hmm. A seven and seven is technically a highball. Yeah. Uh, it's basically anything that is just one mixer and whiskey of some description. Or, one, you know, a mixer and, I mean, literally any spirit. Like, there's right. no whiskey in Sex on the Beach or in, you know, uh, a Harvey Wallbanger. But both of those are technically highballs. However, if you're, at least lately, like I said, last 10 or 15 years, if you're referring to the drink drink, it's generally now a whiskey, usually bourbon, but not always, and ginger ale. And a lot of this is uh, marketing on the part of big bourbon. Um, Jim Beam, for a while, had a highball recipe on the back of their label. Jim Beam and ginger have a highball. Uh, but in a pinch, it's not bad. Uh, it's not as good as Dr. McGillicuddy's in ginger ale. And obviously, you have to use some uh, cheapy bourbon. I use Buffalo Trace because even though it's hard to find, it isn't expensive. We've gone over that in the <laughs> Buffalo Trace episode. Go back in the archives. Uh, so I use some Buffalo Trace and some Schweppes. Uh, really, you only need... I have ice, DJ. I have a whole glass of ice. Can you hear it? It's clinking. Who are you? I know. It's very out of character. Uh, But, you know, the the three ounces, you know, two shots, three ounces of Buffalo Trace, ice, uh, ginger ale, and then I had a thing of, well, still have a thing of maraschino cherries, so I threw two in, but I strained them. So there was absolutely no juice. It's just the cherries. Uh, Almost didn't even review this because the wife came in as I was making it and pretty much took it. So I had to fight her for it uh, in order to come down. But the nice thing about it is uh, you end up with half of a 20-ounce bottle of ginger ale as well. So you get two two drinks out of it. So I'm having a highball today. It's not bad. Uh, If you're looking for something different and easy, any bartender knows how to make a highball. Uh Uh And you yelled at me about the fucking scotch and soda. Yeah, I did. And I still stand by that because bourbon is the entry level whiskey. <laughs> I mean, I didn't waste rye. I didn't waste an Irish. I didn't waste scotch. It's bourbon. <laughs> I only wasted some Johnny Walker, man. Hey, as we have established, Johnny Walker is the, I'm looking it up again just to make my point, the 13th most admired brand of 2021. Yes, well, we all know how we feel about critics on this podcast. We do, but okay, so yes, mock me if you want. We can call this OOC in whiskey if we want. That's my review. Normal service will resume next week, I swear. Uh, But you're pretty out of character, too, because I'm looking at what you're drinking. Yeah. 
So go on, you know, play into this a little bit here. Yeah. So I, um, I, I, when I went to the liquor store, they were closed. So uh, I dipped back into my tasting vials and. Wouldn't y'all be surprised? I left the ones I didn't think I'd like for the end. So it's scotch, scotch, or scotch. Yay! (laughs) Please tell me it's good and peaty. It's not. um, No. Because I looked at the the three vials I had left, and I chose a Highland. Okay. And uh, so I'm drinking, uh, and I had to look this up and how to pronounce this. A Stronachy 10-year uh, single malt scotch out of the Highlands. So it actually has a really interesting history. Uh, the original Stronachy distillery was uh, founded in the 1890s, uh, and it had to close its doors after almost, uh, well, a little bit more than 30 years. Uh, it closed its doors in 1928. So... What I am drinking is not the original Stronachy, uh, but the distillery uh, AD Rattray, Rattray, Rattray sounds better, um, kind of resurrected Stronachy, and they and they they were able to get like one of four bottles that were left from the original thing, and they tried it, and they were like, "This is amazing," and they tried to replicate it. So this is what came out of that experiment. And uh, it's really, it's really good. I love it. It's um, you know I don't normally like scotches, and it does kind of have uh, there's something there's something about scotches that I have a very hard time describing. But when I taste the whiskey, if I don't know it's a scotch, I can I can figure it out pretty quickly. And I don't know if you feel this way, Mark. It's not the peat because not all of them are peated. But there's something, there's something that all scotches share, and it might be the Scottish water, it might be the aging. You know, maybe they all use similar wood in the aging process or something. But there's some backbone that makes a scotch a scotch, and I don't have a sensitive enough, sensitive enough palate to really say what it is. I've always assumed it's the water. Um, I, I could be mistaken on that. Someone with more experience may want to write in to correct me on that written whiskey cast gmail.com uh but i've always assumed it's the water because it is the one common element whether you have more of a peat whether you have more of a smoke even the different types of wood and the different types of casks used like you said you still get that almost palate ectoskeleton yeah that that all scotches have so i have just assumed it's the water um that's what I tell myself anyway. It could be because it is kind of like a minerally thing on the back end. But anywho, I we could talk all all episode about about what makes a scotch a scotch. Um, it's really good. It is not peaty at all. Like I'm getting just boatloads of honey. I'm getting malt. Uh, it ends with a really strong toffee uh, note. And just kind of fades out in a nice way. It does have a burn, but it's not like that rye burn. There's some, there's some pepper. Um, I, I can't think of anything else. Like it, it's definitely like a, a like a harsh peppercorn in your face, but like it's not nearly as overpowering as some of the other whiskeys I've had that are are like this. Like 
you know, a rye just punches you in the face. This is more like, hey, hey, you just, you caught a piece of peppercorn on your food. Um, and it's, it's really, it's all about that honey. There's almost like a, like a shortbread kind of quality to it, which is really okay. interesting. Like it, it's just, it, it's, it's honey and, and, and biscuity and toffee. It's really good. So, uh, if anybody is looking for a good scotch to get into, um, it is about $68 a bottle. Uh, it's 86 proof. Um, but it's Stronachy 10 year, really good. Uh, and, and look it up because it is not spelled like I am saying it, but it is pronounced that way. And I was checking while you were talking, the Stronachy did not make the top 50 most admired brands. Just saying. Yeah, it, it's but actually all- <laughs> kind of weirdly poorly rated online. Like I was looking it up earlier and I was like, oh, nobody seems to like this, but I don't know. Uh, whiskey snobs can eat it. <laughs> this is really good. Well, I mean, I I have never had it. I am not passing judgment either way, but it would be perfectly in character for you to like a scotch no one else does. <laughs> Dude, it's it, it, it's the nobody has, everyone has something to hide but me and my monkey principle. Yeah. And it's just, you know, we're starting off with the spooky season here and DJ has a scotch he likes and I have a basic white bitch cocktail full of ice that I'm enjoying. How scary is this? Mm-hmm. It's Freaky Friday. Do, 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 oh, do, do, do. If only this was actually a bit and we weren't really doing it, but okay. <laughs> so shall we get to the matter at hand? Let's do it. Ghosts and ghouls and booze. Ghost, ghouls, and booze, as you uh, will download this and listen to this, it will be Halloween weekend. Mm. And uh, so I thought, you know, in the interest of our normal banter, I would dig into some of the history here. And again, as per the usual on the W&W, this is just a very much scratching the surface. Uh, I could go on for hours and hours and hours and not really get us out of the Celtic slash Roman period, and that's not going to do anybody any good. So we're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to hit some of the high spots, and we're going to go. Best I can tell, best historians can tell, the roots, the definitive roots of what is now Halloween come from the Celts, which is only fitting since we drink so much English and Scottish and Welsh Uh, liquor and whiskey on this podcast, so that's only fitting. And so it was the Celtic Festival of Samhain. Now, you want to talk about something that does not spell the way it's pronounced. (laughs) Anything Celtic, in fact. Yeah. And basically, it dates from about 2,000 to 2,100 years ago, at least for the records for it. I'm sure it's gone on longer than that, but we have records dating back about 2,100 years ago from it. And so the Celts celebrated their New Year's on November 1st. So Samhain was sort of their New Year's Eve. And now this was even before the Gregorian calendar. This was still, you know, uh, before the Julian calendar, and then it just keeps going and going. But it ended up falling. Their New Year's fell on November 1st. So October 31st was Samhain. And it was primarily a harvest festival. You know, it's it's fall. Winter is coming. We have harvested our crops and had a good hunt. Now we're going to celebrate. But it also was the celebration of upcoming winter and of death. You know, you would mourn the dead that you lost over the year. Uh, Samhain also, being part New Year's Eve, was when the Celts believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to Earth. 
Oh, wow. And so the Celtic priests would use these returning spirits to prophesize for the upcoming year. Good news, bad news, uh, very early meteorological reports. How's the harvest going to be next year? Will you have a baby? You know, you could basically go to these priests and not quite get your fortune told, but there was a little bit of that sort of coming, almost like a tarot card reading. But, you know, the ancestors that you lost in the previous year would come back on New Year's Eve and talk to these priests and tell you what to expect. Uh, In the year 43 CE, the Romans finally conquered the Celts. It's the old joke. The Celts used to fight naked to intimidate their enemies, and the Romans went, hey, we're into that shit. Mm. Uh, But nevertheless, they conquered in 43 Uh, Over the next 400 years, the Romans began to slowly combine two of their major festivals with Samhain. And this was a way that the Romans assimilated uh, some of the conquered, not tribes, but conquered cultures into the Roman Empire. It's often overrated, and we'll talk about this when we do our Roman Empire, Empire episodes. I mean, the Romans didn't completely stamp out culture and religion and everything. Uh, because that was how they kept people in line, and with the exception of Israel, kept rebellions to a minimum. But they did sort of play with the cultures. They stole what they like, notably the Greeks, and they sort of interjected their own things. So they began playing with Samhain, and they slowly merged two of their own Roman festivals into it. The first was Ferelia, which was their own middle to end of October Day of the Dead, because, of course, the Romans had their own of everything. Yeah, of course. And they also began uh, putting the celebrations, uh, celebration festivals of the goddess Pomona. And now the goddess Pomona was the goddess of fruits, vegetables, and the harvest, again, keeping with the harvest festival theme. But do you know what her symbol was, DJ? No. Is it a pumpkin? It was, no, it was an apple. And that is where we get bobbing for apples. Oh, weird. Was Pomona a Roman goddess? She was one of the ones they stole. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> like, did, did, she doesn't have, like, a Greek equivalent. Like, we're not talking, like, Demeter or something like that. Uh, I think she does, but off the top of my head, I don't know what it is. I'm very bad on the conversion. I only learned the Romans. <laughs> um, but I, I will look that up if I remember and get back to you next episode for that. Uh, but she, her, her uh, symbol was the apple, and so that's where we get the earliest bobbing for apples. And this goes on from about the year 443, 450 to 609 CE, when the Catholic Church has to get involved. And in 609 CE, Pope Boniface IV created what was then known as All Martyrs' Day, which was actually celebrated on May 13th, which was to override the Roman celebration of the dead called Lemura. Because again, the Catholics are going to do the same thing. The Romans would put a holiday on a quote-unquote pagan holiday. The Catholics are going to put a holiday on a Roman holiday to get rid of all that uh, polytheism and try to bring you into the church. So same trick, just new guy doing it. That lasted for 122 years or so. And then in 731 CE, Pope Gregory III moved All Martyrs Day to November 1st to stamp out Samhain, because it was still going on, and declared it a day not just for church martyrs, but for, and I'm quoting here from the papal bull, a day of all holy apostles and of all saints, martyrs, and confessors, and of all the just made perfect who are at rest throughout the world. So basically, it's a pagan day of the dead, but... 
it's the Catholic Church, so we're not going to call it a pagan day of the dead. So we're going to write that big, long sentence to say it's a day of the dead. <laughs> uh, 200 and a bit years later, in 1000 CE, a nice round number, the church added the November 2nd celebration of All Souls Day, which was basically for anyone that died and for all holy men and women. Uh, this uh, was also called All Hallows Day or All Holies Day for all holy men and women. Hallow Moss, which I always kind of liked, uh, and the Solemnity of All Saints. Because, you know, if you've ever gone to Catholic school or catechism, you know, when you were a little kid, they said, oh, anyone that dies and goes to heaven is a saint. Well... Technically not, but that's where that comes from. Now, the Catholic version of All Souls Day on November 2nd was, <laughs> surprise, surprise, very similar to Samhain. Uh, it was celebrated the same way. You didn't have priests uh, telling fortunes and predicting the future, but you still had bonfires. You still had big parades and celebratory festivals. You still had dances. But the church added something. They added the very earliest records we can find of costuming. And the costuming was, of course, all biblical. You had angels, you had devils, you had demons, and you had the favorite boogeyman of the Catholic Church for the better part of 1,500 years, witches. (laughs) Uh, In England, in fact, during this uh, period, the uh, early 10th century CE, you got some of the earliest records, at least in European countries, of trick-or-treating. Now, it's not trick-or-treating in the way you and I think about it, but during these parades, the people in the parades would go through town and would hand out what they called souls cakes. And basically, think of Mardi Gras, you know, when you have, like, the king cakes and things, and they throw them from the floats. Kind of the same thing, only much tamer and much blander. That's fair. Uh, I mean, but, okay, so you brought up costuming. I have to know, are you dressing Romulus up for Halloween at all? <laughs> I haven't decided yet, I'll be <laughs> honest. I bought him a bow tie, and I attempted to put it on him about a week ago, and he was not having it, and I have not attempted to since. So in a pinch, I may just finally put that on him. <laughs> but I haven't bought a costume yet, but we're going to talk about pet costumes in the trivia section. Nice. Uh, so, okay, so All Saints and All Souls Day was actually one of the uh, holidays, uh, Christian holidays, that carried on through the Reformation. Very little changed. Most Protestant religions have All Saints and All Souls Day with only very minor changes. Uh, the night before All Saints Day, which was October 31st, which is Halloween, began to be called All Hallows' Eve or All Holies' Eve. Because, nice. you know, we're the church. We have to have Eves, Christmas Eve, uh, Holy Saturday, All Hallows Eve. So we're going to skip forward a little bit to colonial America. And for the purposes of this argument, when I say colonial America, I mean early colonial America, the six, later 1600s, early 1700s. Uh, Europeans coming over and colonizing America brought their own traditions, whether they be Dutch, English, uh, Spanish, etc., And they began combining them with Native American culture. And this is where you start to see some superstitions come out. Uh, The All Hallows celebration still remained a combination harvest festival and Day of the Dead. But new things came out. You began to see across America play parties, they were called, which featured the dances and the bonfires, but also had ghost stories and fortune-telling the way we would think of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
surprise, surprise, witchcraft is still a very major theme uh, that runs through a lot of these celebrations. And by the dawn of the 1800s in some parts of America, trick-or-treating as we would recognize it is actually going on. People would actually go to door. You read that they go to door for food or money. You might go and get two pence from the house down the street. You might get a cookie from somewhere. But this was a way to build community. This was a way to get out to know your neighbors. Everybody would make something. Everybody would donate something. And people would just sort of go around and have like a very small-scale potluck and just swap food. Now, obviously, all of these celebrations from the 1600s through to about 1790 that we're talking about here, they were very regionable, regional, rather. Um, they were big in the South. Uh, they saw some action in the Mid-Atlantic. Maryland they were very big in, which is surprising since that was a Catholic colony originally. But uh, So the South and Mid-Atlantic. Uh, would you be surprised to know, DJ, that they're very frowned on in New England? Really? <laughs> yeah, there wasn't a lot of it in New England. You don't want to be... Uh, celebrating the witches and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, to trying to fair, read your future. We do have Salem. We do have Salem, which is another episode I want to I do in the future. Uh, but also keep in mind a lot of the, not all, but a lot of the early New England religions believed in predestination. And so trying to see your future was a big no-no. Mm. Uh, fast forward a little bit, the early Victorian era, the Civil War era. In America, young women believed that on Halloween night they could divine the name or even the physical appearance of their future husband by doing tricks with pieces of yarn, apple parings, or staring into the mirror at the stroke of midnight. Wow. Yeah, I... <laughs> no, it's... Yeah, it's just... Nope. Um, this lasted until... Uh, the Upper Victorian era and then the Edwardian era. And wouldn't you know, uh, Queen Victoria, you know, once that all swept away, Halloween kind of went downhill. Trick-or-treating kind of died. Halloween died. They wanted to squash the grotesque. They wanted to squash the evil. You had a very early satanic panic. And you know what revived it, DJ? No, what revived it? At least in America, anyway. We were just talking about this. The Great Depression. <laughs> In many ways, the Great Depression brought forth what we would consider to be modern Halloween. Interesting. Because it was a way for an entire community, an entire town to come together, pool all their resources, and share what little they had. You could make a good time for the children. You could have a distraction from the life you're living. Everybody could get together and have a party, a little celebration, to take some of the drudgery out of it. Uh, schools began having Halloween parties again, just as a distraction from the kids who, in many cases, were unfortunately starving. Uh, the church and various social groups, uh, remember we talked about this in our Prohibition episode, social groups, temperance groups, and the likes were very powerful in this era. Uh, they tried to return Halloween to its completely religious roots. They, again, get rid of the evil, get rid of the devil, get rid of the witches. Uh, but by the end of World War II, Halloween was here to stay, baby. Nice. And so that, in a nutshell, is the very brief history of Halloween. So, now, take us to the pop culture, which is good. That's about why I stopped at World War II, because a lot of what you're going to talk about is after World War II. Not yeah. all of it, but a lot of it. Not all of it. Now, uh, I'm not covering horror movies. Um, I like... 
what I affectionately called growing up Mickey Scary. Okay, I need an example. Uh, I'm a really big fan of the themes of Halloween. I like Halloween candy. I like the black and orange color combination. I like Halloween decorations. I occasionally like a spooky story. Um, I do not like horror movies. I can't do haunted houses. Just way too much sensory overload for me. Um, I like to just be able to experience Halloween at my own pace and not necessarily scare the pants off myself. Well, I am not a big horror movie fan either, but for me, it has nothing to do with scary, not scary, or the like. I find most, and I say most, not all, I'm trying not to generalize here, but I find most horror movies to be very cliche. You you get a, you know, supernatural being of some sort or possession or demon or what have you, unstoppable, unkillable, pure evil, dies at the end, comes back next movie. It's just Mm -hmm. all very trite. You have some fake gore, you have some nudity, and you've made yourself a horror film. Yeah. Like, I enjoy Stranger Things. That's oh, kind I of, hated Stranger uh, Things. Of course you did. Stranger <laughs> Things is kind of my level of creepy. Um, you know, I, I like a good Neil Gaiman book. Neil Gaiman oh, I has, like Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman has a way of introducing horror in a way that, like, it doesn't catch up to you until, like, a week later. Like, it, I, I like a slow burn. I don't like slasher movies. I can't do body horror. So I have compiled a list of what I would consider accessible pop culture things to, um, that, that you can kind of experience during Halloween. I've got some creepy shit in here. Um, but by and large, you know, most of this is pretty accessible. So I started with literature and I wanted to go back all the way to 1845 Uh, 1845 saw the publication of one of what I would consider the greatest works of horror short fiction uh, by one of the first practitioners of the short story and the father of detective fiction. The story is, or I should say the poem, is called The Raven, and it is by Edgar Allan Poe. So fucking good. It's so good. And uh, I, I actually have a story about a grandma Poe from my own life. Um, so I went to a Catholic high school, and we were all required to have Bibles. And, you know, it was the cheap Bible that had, like, the cheap gold filigree and, um, you know, whatever. Uh, and I had a classmate, and she was very, very, very religious. Like, wanted to go into a convent, devoting herself to God, the whole thing. So I, uh, being the creepy, precocious teenager that I was, uh, listened to a lot of emo music and read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe. And I had one of the, do you remember the like series of faux leather bound books that Barnes and Noble did? Oh yeah. I had the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe in this really nice faux leather edition. Uh, but. It looked like black leather with gold filigree. (laughs) So I brought it in and had it, you know, cover side down. Uh, And I was because we were reading like the cask of Amontillado in English. Uh, And this friend comes in at lunchtime, sees this book next to me. She goes, 
I've been praying for you. I'm so proud of you. you. This is such a nice Bible. And I just looked at her deadpan and flipped the book over. And she goes, oh, you're going to hell and walked out. I'll have to, you know, do you still talk to this friend? I do not. Oh, I was going to say, I think I have a leather-bound copy of Mein Kampf somewhere. I'll send you. Um, But, so, 1845, we got the Raven, you know, uh, quote the Raven, nevermore. Such great language in that book. Great for reading under the covers when uh, you're a little kid and frightened of everything. Um, 1842 brought the Mask of Red Death, which yes, post COVID hits a little bit different, folks. Yeah, it really fucking does. Yep. Uh, 1843 brought us the Telltale Heart, one of the creepiest stories ever written. So I also went to uh, Catholic school my whole life up to well up to college, mm-hmm. and you know they beat into your head the idea of conscience. And I don't know, maybe I'm broken, maybe I'm an evil person, but I never really understood the concept until I read the Telltale Heart, and I was like, oh fuck, yeah, is that what it's like? Uh huh, uh huh, yeah, it's horrifying. Uh, and then 1846 and 1849 brought my two favorite Edgar Allan Poe short stories. The first being the cask the cask of Amontillado, just. Literally a story whose core premise is killing someone with kindness. I love it so much. Uh, And the uh, second one is one that is lesser known. Uh, It's called Hot Frog uh, or the Eight Chained Orangutans. Uh, And Hot Frog is about a, a diminutive court jester who watches the king and his courtiers uh, beat a young woman and decides to plan revenge on them by designing a, like, a dance routine in their um, at their next festival. And he ends up convincing them to wear tar and then drops a flaming chandelier on all of them. And it's amazing. It's a very well-done story. I highly recommend it. Uh, I'm going to completely fast forward all the way to 1985. Uh, and this is actually, 140 years, man. Good yeah, Lord. Yeah, 140 years. Uh, I did not go super in depth. There is way more literature out there that we could discuss, but I just picked three in this category. So I thought I was scratching the surface, but okay, go <laughs> yeah, ahead. Yeah. Uh, 1985, uh, Stephen King published the Bachman books. And I actually think the Bachman books is really fascinating for a while in the 70, late 70s, early 80s, uh, publishing companies refused to publish more than one big work by an author uh, in the U.S. And it, it, it was just uh, the unwritten rule, thou shalt not saturate the market. But we're talking about fucking Stephen King here, right? This guy has written so many books. So what he did is he started in 1977, he started writing books uh, under the pseudonym of Richard Bachman. In 1977, he wrote the the novel Rage. Uh, 1979 gave us The Long Walk. 1981 gave us Road Work. And 1982 gave us The Running Man. Which, if you want to talk about something that hits different in the modern era, talking about controlling the media and Mm -hmm. media bias and everything... Read The Running Man, see the movie. It's like you sit there and go, "Ooh, this is legitimately scary." Yeah, yeah. It uh, it 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 kind of puts the Squid Game to shame. 
Um, oh, yeah. This was Squid Game long before Squid Game. Yeah. And uh, the really interesting thing about the Bachman books is if you, if you kind of look back in Stephen King's history, there is a book that Stephen King wrote called Thinner. Uh, and Thinner was meant to be the fifth Bachman book. But uh, a an avid fan figured it out and, like, outed him to the media right before Thinner was published, and he had to publish Thinner as Stephen King. So in 1985, he took these four books and he bound them in a single volume called the Bachman Books, and I own a copy, and it's very cool. The interesting thing about the Bachman Books is that uh, it will never be published again because Rage, published 1977, is a story about... Uh, psychological manipulation and a school shooting. And when Columbine happened in the late 90s, I think it was 97, um, Stephen King just decided to let Rage and the Bachman books uh, go out of print. He's like, I don't want this published again. I, I, you know, I don't really it's not a good scene. It's not a good story to be telling in this kind of new world order. Um, so you can't actually find it except for used at this point. I had to order a copy off eBay like 10 years ago. Um, all of these stories are definitely worth reading. They're all pretty short. Uh, my last entry again, fast forwarding another 20 some odd years, uh, 2008, uh, Neil Gaiman published a, uh, a young adult novel called The Graveyard Book, uh, which is about uh, a, a young child, young boy, uh, raised by ghosts in a graveyard. And it's utterly amazing. It's a very good book. It's got creepy in all the right places. Like, it literally starts with the rest of the, the boy's family getting murdered. Um, incidentally... Uh, if you want to kind of get some of the background on how the Graveyard Book came to be, uh, you can check out his short story that he published in 2002 uh, called October in the Chair, uh, which was kind of his testing ground, and that story eventually became the Graveyard Book. Uh, and you can read October in the Chair in his short story anthology, Fragile Things, which is my favorite short story anthology. Very good. There's some creepy shit in there too, but I'll let you discover it. Uh, comic books. You know Mark and I love a good comic book. And do I want, we? We do. We do very much. Damn it, Mark. Stop drinking <laughs> highballs and denying your love of comics. <laughs> no, I, I... Yeah, no, the day I... Well, I, I can't reveal it, but I know what one of the presents uh, Annie ordered for me for my birthday is. And uh, let me just say, as a comic fan, it's something I've been hunting down for a long time. But that's neither here nor there. Amazing. Uh, I did pull a couple of crossover events. So I went one DC, one Marvel, and I went one from IDW. So in 2009 to 2010, uh, we got the DC crossover event, Blackest Night. So fucking good. Yeah, one of the best. It literally, I mean, it's it's a fucking creepy plot of, uh, like, you find out that there are Black Lanterns and, like, dead heroes and villains start getting resurrected. Some get killed and resurrected. We get, like, the first real glimpse of, like, uh, like a zombie version of a, a comic universe for a little while. Uh, it, it's super creepy, but it also established the other lantern colors. We get some really great plots of, like, 
you know, what it, it, it's almost like a, a DC what if of, uh, you know, who, who would get what ring, right? You know, we see Lex Luthor get an orange ring and be amazing. Uh, you know, we, we get some red rings going on in areas you wouldn't expect. Like Sinestro ends up being kind of a hero. It's, it's great. So check it out. Uh, in 2011, we got Marvel's lesser-known crossover event, Fear Itself, uh, which is really great for reading. Uh, I almost actually recommend the side uh, books f- for it, like Fear Itself Spider-Man, Fear Itself Iron Man. Um, the Fear Itself Iron Man tied into the Invincible Iron Man saga at that point, and it, it was kind of spun out of Stark Disassembled, so definitely check it out. Uh, but the whole concept is uh, like the the like primordial god of death and sin uh, sends uh, objects that corrupt various heroes and villains in the Marvel universe, and their friends have to fight them. Uh, and it, it reveals some really interesting, darker elements of, of heroes. It's Another kind of good example of this would be um, DC's recent uh, Dark Knight's Metal. Yeah. Yeah, uh, which kind of contemplated, like, uh, you know, seven different versions of Batman going horribly wrong. Uh, The last one I have is a true uh, horror comic series. 2008 to 2013 gave us Lock and Key. Uh, by Joe Hill, and uh, the artist is uh, Gabriel Rodriguez. His art is fantastic. Uh, this is also a series on Netflix right now, so you can you can see it as it's coming out. Um, the whole concept is a sentient house and a number of keys in the house that open to different planes of existence and all the horrible horror that goes along with that. It's, it's uh, what if Coraline went horribly wrong... Mm. So, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend all of these. Um, I, I really like Fear Itself. Mark and I are huge fans of Blackest Night, so go check them out. Uh, for TV, uh, I previously mentioned um, Stranger Things. I, I know Mark doesn't like it. I think it's great. Um, you know, make your own decision. Uh, it it's, it, it kind of nods back to, like, classic 80s horror um, and, and spook, spooky things. Um, but really, uh, I I couldn't I couldn't not mention it. The TV special, it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. I haven't got a text from the old man yet. I don't know when it's. I'm very surprised. I don't know when it's going to be on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think it's probably the second best of all of the uh, Charlie Brown specials. Um, You're going to say fucking Christmas, aren't you? Yeah, of course I'm going to say fucking Christmas. You, <laughs> fucking you know I'm going to say fucking Christmas. <laughs> fucking hate you. Um, and then uh, I. Not scary at all, but I have to recommend the Disney original movies of Halloween Town. There's like four of them, and they're all fantastic. I want to say something snide here, but I've never seen nor heard of any of them, so uh, I can't. They're terrible and also <laughs> great. Like, you just, you have to, just, just, listeners, go see the first one. It's on Disney+. Plus. Uh, I, I, they're, they're... Stupid and ridiculous, and they're worth shouting at the the TV for. Uh, Just go check it out. Uh, The last section for pop culture I have is movies, and I chose shit that's not horror at all. 
but kind of edges around horror uh, nicely. So um, I am course, I, of course, I'm going to start this off with uh, my holy grail of movies, Nightmare Before Christmas, of course. Now, Bride. wait just a second there, cowboy. What? I have to I have a bone to pick with you on this one. Of course you do. Let me guess. You, you, you think it's a Christmas movie. No, you do. You and I got into a very heated argument about this not that long ago. Mm-hmm. I said it's a Halloween movie, and you said absolutely not. It's a Christmas movie. Uh, if you go back and listen to the recording, I said it is both. It c- transcends holidays. I don't know about this one, cowboy. I am an out and proud non-binary person, and this movie can represent two holidays. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, I can't argue with that without it becoming a hate crime. Uh-huh. That's not fair. <laughs> Hey, I'll play the rainbow card to just to, to save my movie from your arguing. You bastard. All right, go. <laughs> um, You're lucky I'm an ally. Move on. <laughs> uh, I will also include the recent edition of Frankenweenie and the original Frankenweenie. Both are very good. I do, uh, as a headcanon, I do kind of agree with some of the fan community that the little boy and the dog from Frankenweenie are uh, grow up to be the groom and the skeleton dog in Corpse Bride and eventually become Jack and Zero in Nightmare Before Christmas. Wait, is that not the actual canon? Because I, is, I seriously isn't. thought it was. It isn't, but that is definitely my head canon. Oh, well, I'm actually with you on that because up until this moment, I thought that was the actual canon. <laughs> so there, it shows you what I know. Yeah. Uh, then uh, I'll add in here, not strictly horror, definitely horror comedy, um, but the Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy. Uh, it, it's a, a trio of movies uh, by Edgar Wright. Uh, the first one is Shaun of the Dead in 2004. Uh, the second one is Hot Fuzz in 2007. And the last one is uh, At World's End in 2013, which is my favorite of them and the least popular and, you know, fine. You can disagree with me if you want. Um, I've never actually seen at world's end. I I like it. So they're all roughly, I mean, an argument could be made. They're all the same movie. Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz are totally pretty much the same movie. Yeah. I mean, the first one is a zombie apocalypse. The second one is a creepy cult town. And the third one is uh, alien invasion. So they, they all have really interesting themes. Uh, the next entry I have is, again, comedy horror, but it does get pretty visceral at times. Uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil in 2010. Uh, it's hilarious. It has uh, Alan Tudyk from Firefly in it uh, playing this, this completely confused redneck trying to figure out why all of these teenagers keep killing, himself on his, killing themselves on his property. Uh, you get to see a really great scene of a teenager just throwing himself into a wood chipper because he trips. Yes, because comedy. Because <laughs> comedy. <laughs> uh, and then these last two are uh, both Netflix finds that uh, Holly and I found in the last couple of years. The first one is Rim of the World. Uh, it's uh, you know a bunch of ragtag kids in summer camp who have to save the world from an alien invasion and you get to see the alien really murder people. <laughs> it's pretty rough. For more of a cutesy entry on the list, uh, I definitely recommend The Babysitter's Guide to Monster Hunting, which came out last year. 
Uh, Rim of the World was 2019. Babysitter's Guide was 2020. They're both on Netflix. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, maybe maybe wait uh, until your kids are a little older for Rim of the World. Uh, I do have to, as an honorable mention, I, I didn't like it because I don't like horror movies, but I did appreciate it for like how clever of a movie it was. So if you are a horror movie fan, I definitely recommend checking out Cloverfield. Have you seen Cloverfield? That's like the knockoff Godzilla movie, right? It's uh, it's Godzilla if Godzilla won and murdered everybody and caused everybody's like bodies to explode. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Mm. It was I. It's kind of found footage, you know. I was I'm I was kind of like, no, this is too much for me the whole time. But uh, I definitely recommend it if you like horror. Um, I wanted to end. Before we get to trilogy, uh, uh, trilogy. Before trilogy. we get to <laughs> trivia, um, I wanted to end with talking about some creepy locations and like Halloween places in New Hampshire. Uh, so, in Portsmouth, which is a local town around here, uh, we have this kind of cool, quirky little shop called Pickwick's, and it's. The conceit is kind of like an old-timey general store, and they've got... It's it's ostensibly a gift shop. You know, they've got books, and they've got Harry Potter merch and, and things like that, but they also have some really interesting stuff. Like, it's the only place I can find, like, uh, you know, blades for a safety razor, and uh, they've got old-timey candy and shit like that. Uh, so Pickwick's you is fun. in a goddamn Norman Rockwell painting. But go, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, so Pickwick's is cool, but during the month of October uh, and, and through some of the fall, they have a second shop that they open off the beaten path called Deadwick's. And Deadwick's is super creepy and Halloween-y. Uh, they have uh, everything from, you know, occult books and and incense burners, and, and there's a lot of, like, uh, you know... I. I, I, I definitely don't want this to seem like I'm lumping in a legitimate religion like Wiccan or something like that with, with uh, you know, cheap Halloween things. But they've actually got some pretty legit stuff in there, which is pretty cool, uh, as well as some, you know, Portsmouth-style Halloween decorations and things like that. Uh, so definitely check it out if you're in the area. Uh, there's also a ghost tour in Portsmouth that's pretty cool. I've taken it. They take you to a bar, and you get to have a drink, and hear about the haunted That way you can see the ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, uh, there's a place in Portsmouth called uh, the Chase House, which was a late 19th century orphanage, which is purported to be haunted by the spirit of a little girl who hung herself. Uh, so that's, that's a happy story for everybody. Um, in Concord, uh, there's the... It's, it's since been new-named the New Hampshire Hospital, but... Uh, it's it used to be called the New Hampshire Asylum for the Insane, which was built in 1842. Uh, you know, all, all sorts of spooky things are, are reported there. Uh, you know, s- s- phantom uh, steps in the hallway and elevators uh, opening when they shouldn't. Uh, and then in Henniker, there is the Oceanborn Mary House, uh, which is literally the home of basically a pirate queen. Um, I, I'm not going to 
totally detail the story of the the Oceanborn Mary house here. Um, but a, a woman uh, m- married a pirate and found her her love uh, murdered uh, on the grounds, and it's rumored that she, uh, in death, uh, is still protecting the house. It's actually a private residence still. So yeah, New Hampshire is kind of spooky. Three, two, one. I mean, there are nice little bits of local folklore and culture, but legitimate hauntings, I don't know. You know, it could be. I've got some friends who believe in ghosts. It doesn't hurt anybody to believe in them most of the time. Wasn't that like the whole thing? Like Like, that they believe it does hurt? Like, that's why they're always like, oh, stay here, don't come with us, don't follow us. I mean, maybe in horror movies, but here in Portsmouth, we just do ghost tours and talk about haunted beer. I don't know. I There's a bunch of places like that around here. I didn't look any of them up because uh, I don't give a shit. Uh, <laughs> because you're a also, non-believer. Well, yes, I, I actually, you know, we did some of these uh, investigations, as they call them, in a few of our buildings, and I've been on some different TV shows and whatnot for it, and I'm always referred to as a skeptic, <laughs> which, you know, tickles me to no end. Uh, but I am a little disappointed in you for the movies. You didn't list uh, my favorite Halloween movie, uh, one of two movies I watch every year at Halloween. You didn't name either one of them, but I didn't expect you to name the other one. Uh, but you didn't list uh, Rocky Horror, so I'm I'm a little upset with you. I'm sorry. I I told you I've never seen it. You're supposed to invite me over so we can watch it together. Oh, maybe we'll have to see if we could do like a Facebook watch party or something this year because I watch it every year. <laughs> um, I also watch the Hollywood Nights every year, which if anyone else has ever actually seen that movie, uh, I'll buy you a drink because it's pretty much just me, the wife, and the old man because we're the only three people because I make them watch it every year. Amazing. Uh, but all right, let's wrap up with a little trivia. I know we're running long here. We'll just touch on a few of them. Uh, just some fun facts, and then I'm going to quiz you on a few questions. So... Uh, one quarter of all candy in the U.S. is sold for Halloween. So I mean, just think of that. One out of every four pieces of candy in America goes to Halloween. That's a lot of fucking candy. I feel like it's kind of bonkers that there's still 75 per- Like, we eat 75% of the candy throughout the rest of the year. Like, that's so no, much I mean, candy. Now, admittedly, I'm a fat man. But, I mean, I know, like, when we're going on a road trip somewhere or when we used to race somewhere or whatever, you run into a gas station, you fill up the truck, you get a coffee. Oh, there's a Reese's. Oh, okay, there's a Hershey bar. You just get something to hold you over on the road. I know how many of those I buy throughout the year. And if there's just 10 people like me, 100 people like me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, to me, I would thought it would have been more throughout the year, but maybe that's just me. Uh, you had mentioned about pets buying Romulus a costume in 2019, which, of course, is the last year we have accurate figures for, because last year was a little kooky. Uh, Americans, this is just Americans, this is not worldwide, Americans spent $490 million solely on pet costumes. Sweet fucking Jesus. Which segues me into my first question for you, DJ. In that same year of 2019, once again, only in America, what was the total consumer spend on Halloween? Uh, just costumes? 
No, no, just in, for the whole holiday, everything. Oh, like a couple billion, I would think. Like decorations and candy and... $2.6 billion. Ooh, I got pretty close on that one. And remember, that's just America, folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about candy. Uh, are you a candy corn man, DJ? I am. I enjoy candy corn as well. Uh, do you know how much is produced on an annual basis? Too fucking much for how many people complain about it on the internet. 35 million pounds. Holy fuck. Which I breaks... It, I can't fit that in my head. Well, fit this into your head. It breaks down to roughly 9 billion individual pieces. That's amazing. Uh, we talked about the $2.6 billion uh, on spending. Obviously, we all know the horrible consumer albatross that is Christmas is the number one uh, consumer spend holiday in America. Where do you think Halloween ranks? Uh, maybe number four? It's actually number two. Really? Yep. That's how big of a gap there is between... Number one and number two. That's how big Christmas is. Yeah, Christmas is amazing. Can't wait to talk about it this year. Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. Ugh, humbug. Uh, we'll get a little presidential history. You know, I love my presidential history. Who was the, fir- the first first lady, easy for me to say, to decorate the White House for Halloween? Um, Mary Todd. <laughs> no, you're about 100 years too early. Mamie Eisenhower. All right, well, you're lucky I could name a first lady. Uh, I'll give you an easy one. What famous magician died on Halloween? Uh, Wasn't it um, Houdini? It was indeed. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll end with two quick ones here. Well, actually, three quick ones, then we'll end. Uh, What was the first citywide, city-sanctioned celebration of Halloween in the U.S.? Where was it? What city was it? Uh, New Orleans. Ancora, Minnesota. That's, nobody would have guessed that. No, nobody would have guessed that one. Uh, we talked about horror movies and how neither one of us likes them. What was the most commercially successful horror movie of all time? Uh, was it one of the recent It movies? It's exactly what it was. And last but not least, little new, uh, uh, little American folk trivia for you. Where did the real live Ichabod Crane live? Um, I don't know. Is it somewhere in Scotland? No, it, it was New York, but it wasn't Sleepy Hollow. It was actually Staten Island. That, that's so much more boring than Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> well, that's why they jazzed it up a little bit. So that's... <laughs> That's a little bit of Halloween trivia I have for y'all. DJ, take us the fuck out of here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, people of uh, n- non-specific genders, we uh, thank you so much for listening to our first episode of season four. We're back, yes. everybody. Oh, it's good to be back. It, it really is. Uh, this is going to take us, uh, I'm pretty sure, through Christmas, right? Yeah, if we stick to the 15-episode format, there's five weeks in November... Then Christmas will be four. Yeah, they will pretty much be ending the season around New Year's by my math. Yeah, that'll be great. And we'll take a little bit of a break in January, but we don't have to worry about that. We, we're getting through Halloween uh, this week. We got Thanksgiving coming. I can't wait to do a Thanksgiving episode. I have so many opinions about cooking. 
I'm actually not going to be a Scrooge for that episode. I legitimately enjoy Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's the one hol- uh, the one holiday that everybody on this podcast stands. So it's going to be great. Um, please subscribe. You know, you'll get please. us in your ears uh, 8 a.m. every Friday. Uh, really great to listen to right around lunchtime while you're you're taking that little bit longer lunch that you you like to sneak on Fridays. Uh, give us that review on iTunes. Uh, give us a rating if if you really like the podcast. We love those five star uh, reviews. Pre save us on Spotify. We're in a billion different places: Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Listen Notes. There's like thirty different places. Uh, we'll, we'll eventually publish some more listen buttons out on our, our website. We can figure out how to do that. Uh, speaking of which, we're um, out on the interwebs, uh, thewitandwhiskeycast.com. Uh, we are on all of the social medias, uh, specifically two of them, uh, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, <laughs> the only at, ones that matter, anyway. Yeah, uh, at the Wit and Whiskey Cast, uh, there uh, is no H in Wit and an E in Whiskey, uh, despite what Mark may tell you. Uh, and we release at 8 a.m. on uh, Fridays. Uh, Mark, what are we talking about next week? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, we are coming into the fall season. Uh, well, actually, we're pretty much through the fall season. We're coming into the winter season, as we've discussed. I'm looking through our topics list here to see what we haven't touched on. Uh, hmm. Well, I mean, we could keep playing. I mean, this is just me spitballing here a little bit. We could keep playing with the theme. Oh? Well, I know you rather enjoy fall. I do. I'm actually fairly indifferent to fall. Of course uh, I, I, don't, I don't like it, but I don't despise it. It's certainly not my least favorite season. Uh, you know... Could we make a hot takes episode out of a season? Yeah. I have many hot takes. <laughs> Most of them are leave me and my fucking pumpkin spice alone. I think that was the easiest sell for an episode I've ever done for this show. <laughs> so, all right, folks. Next week, hot takes uh, and whiskey. Autumn. Yeah, I, I can't wait. That's going to be amazing. Uh, we, of course, want to thank Nuno Henry Silva for intro and outro music. Um, I actually have an update. His new book is out. Ooh. Yeah, uh, he's got a, another uh, a short fiction, and I think actually this one's all poetry. So um, we'll, uh, we'll throw a link into our show notes uh, so you can go check out his new book. Uh, and we'll make sure to send you to his uh, SoundCloud as well because he, he gets his music up there. Um, but yeah, you know, I know you listen. So, uh, pencil is down at some point from a, a dramatic reading of one of your poems. Yes. So, so pencil is down for that. Calling it now. Yeah. Maybe we'll get him in to, uh, to do another, like maybe we can do a poetry and, and whiskey episode. Um, I have many opinions about Robert Frost and my wife shakes her head every time I say that. Um, can we talk about the man from Nantucket? No, that's not poetry. That's limericks. We that's not a, that's not on on topic there, buddy. No, no, no. no. I want to talk about the man from Nan. No, we no. don't talk about the man. I don't want to know what's past uh, our explicit tag on iTunes. <laughs> well, bef- before we, uh, you know, before we start talking about the next episode, uh, hope you all have a good week and cheers. 
Salut.